Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa aparuta de sangamatasatavara So I want to welcome everybody this afternoon and uh, reflect on Dhamma, reflect on the way it is. <clears throat> so reflecting is our ability to be the witness, the observer, rather than the owner or the critic. And so the thinking process, our ability to think, is a critical function. So I've emphasized that over and over again. When we get caught up in thinking, then we we see this is right or that's wrong. When we see, look inward, we criticize ourselves, we criticize our families, the world we live in, and so there's plenty to criticize in the, in the world or in oneself. So the critical function has its use in worldly situations and also be a curse of getting caught up in just seeing what's wrong with everything. And so, you know, just to be the observer of that, it's not like I'm trying to say you shouldn't be critical, but is that your true nature? Are you a critic? Are you... A uh, human being who lives in a world full of seeing what's wrong with it, with yourself, with the society, with the family. <laughs> because that oftentimes is what happens to us. We, we live in a realm of just being uh, seen, dwelling on what's wrong, what we don't like. We dwell in the past about the injustices or humiliations or suffering we experience in the, in our past, so we can be caught in uh, in remembering what happened, the un injustice or unfairness or the brutality that we might have experienced as a child, as a teenager, as an adult. So uh, reflecting on that is not trying to get rid of it, but 
ask yourself, are you really, is that your true nature? Is it spending your life remembering the injustices of life or the unfairness or the humiliation? Or we can spend our old age in just remembering the, the happy events. So that's memory. Memory is something that is also a, a gift and a curse. We, this, uh, that's our nature as human animals, is that we have a retentive memory. So we can create languages, complicated languages, codes, mathematics, physics, all due to ability to remember. So memory then, in terms of Dhamma, to reflect on memory is not trying to remember anything, but observing that, that the very language you think is a memory. <clears throat> whether it's a simple pronoun me or the good times and when I was young or the unfairness of life it's, we remember the past so the past in this case as I've often said is, is a memory in the present So in terms of the five khandhas, we use the sanya khanda, as a memory, being able to remember. And there's a lot we'd like to forget, a lot in our life and unpleasant experiences and situations that we would just as soon forget. So memory is something we acquire and we can forget. So like a newborn infant isn't remembering anything, but it's, it's fully conscious. And the form is, is a human form, male or female, and it's a conscious form, but it, it doesn't have anything to remember. What it does know in newborn infant is uh, surviving when it's hungry, when it's tired, when it's lonely, and so forth. These are more or less feelings that are natural to the human condition, being born as a separate form into a world of conditioned phenomena that we don't, uh, that we're experiencing through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind, but we don't understand it. So we call this innocence. In our childhood, we, we live to a certain age of, of innocent experience, and we're conditioned through the family, through the culture, through the religion, <clears throat> to see ourselves in certain ways. 
what's right and wrong, what's normal, what's abnormal, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable is a way of training a child. So it's a kind of reward and punishment experience. So in, with getting back to the subject of memory, then we, we're conditioned to, to know, to have views about what's right and views about what's wrong. We get punished for being wrong. We get rewarded for being right. So, so then righteousness becomes important to us. We, we judge ourselves, our lives, our experience of life as we grow older with these two terms, right and wrong, good or bad. And that's the, the critical mind, remembering what you were taught when you were innocent, what is right behavior, what is normal behavior, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable, what is bad behavior, abnormal behavior. So these are words that we acquire and they form our ego. We, we develop a sense of, of ourself as a very separate entity in a vast universe, in a world that is changing and unpredictable, but which we, we have been told that we should believe in this or not believe in that. So the conditioning process it destroys this innocence and then we be we're caught in in the conditioning which is memory so your cultural conditioning is is all remembered for example here in europe the the national identities are very you know conditioned from in your innocent years, you're conditioned to seeing yourself as English or Scottish or French. And what is that? What is being English? Is a memory that you were you were educated with. You were told you were English or French when you were an innocent child. You had no choice but take what what you're told, what your mother and father, family, your group, your group identity is, is established in those early years of childhood and teenage. So in reflecting on memory, on sanya, is to be the witness of it rather than the owner. Like when I say we, we own memories, then we, we are very much affected by remembering the past. And we're, we're given future predictions about the future. And uh, we have, we, and that's all memory, imagination about the future. So the future is, for all of us, we get older and older 
and then we get sick and then we die. So that that's our future for for every single person here, everyone in the world. But that is not very pleasant for most people to think of that. They want to stay young and healthy and successful because those are the 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 conditions you're rewarded for when you're young. So sanyakanda or memory is to is to be witness to. And this all you have to do is just think a pronoun like I I am personal pronoun and a verb and that's that's memory it arises and ceases it's useful it's functional in in the in the world in the society but it's also impermanent and not self it's not you're not an i am you're not a you're not a separate form in the universe that you feel like when you think and when you remember what you've been told. By reflecting on the impermanence of sanya, of memory, you begin to lose your interest in your memories. They're no longer that important because they are just things that arise and cease. Words that you've been, that you've acquired in your childhood, in your early years when you're learning to speak a language. And you've been told that, you know, and we're educated to learn languages, to learn subjects of interest. There's a lot of things to be interested in that we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, mental training of various sorts, intellectual challenges, aesthetics, <clears throat> modern science, modern psychology. Now there's artificial intelligence, and that's all memory, too, the mechanical function of programming a, a robot, a machine. So, and then in uh, Buddhist terms, we re reflect on that memory is impermanent. So we say, sanya anicca. All memories are impermanent. So that gives us a different perspective because we, we're, we're more witnessing the impermanence of a memory rather than the owner, uh, the judgment that comes from remembering the past or worrying about the future, projecting into the future ominous predictions, Armageddon, the end of the world, nuclear war, climate change, all these are words that we remember that are common enough in the media at this time. 
But then as a separate form in the universe, you know, there's a, it's a very frightening experience to feel this separateness in a very fragile form such as the human body. <laughs> because it's very vulnerable, easily damaged, subject to disease, gets old, dies, and our identity is so fixed in, in with the, what we look like, with the, the bodies that we strongly own and identify with. So the cause of suffering is this attachment to conditions, to memories, to, to thoughts, to emotions. And the insight is to let go of them, which doesn't mean destroying them, getting rid of them, because that, that is impossible. It's our very nature in this species, of the human species, to, to have retentive memory. So we can lose our memories as we get older. Uh, when we're young, when we're youthful, we have maybe very active memories, easily remember things. As the years go by, your memory isn't so active. It's hard to remember the past or events in the same way that you did when you were younger. <laughs> and so memory is something that you get and you can lose. Because it is impermanent and it's not self. It's not, you know, to see it, to own memory as yourself, then you become a separate person. And when you start losing your memory, then you, you know, the judgment, others, you know, see you as, as uh, demented or not, no longer uh, interesting because society depends on activating memories, on being interesting, on being lively, on supporting the party line. So it's interesting in the political systems of modern countries how strongly one identifies with the right or the left, with words like democracy or communism or socialism. These are, <clears throat> these are memories, acquired thoughts or ideas or ideals that we're told is normal, right, or good. So in the United States where I grew up, communism was bad and democracy was good. So even in the present-day American news programs, the media, to call somebody a communist is to put them down. And so is communism bad, or do we have we just been conditioned to believe it's bad and is democracy good? 
So we, we believe that everything should be democratic. What about socialism? That can be another insult, or it can be something very inspiring. When you read uh, Karl Marx, for example, you know, you realize how many people were inspired by his attitudes of socialism and communism because they're very idealistic about equality and, and uh, getting rid of the class structures, the wealthy and the poor and so forth, everything shared, everything equal. How better can, it, can you imagine it where the society is, is perfect, where there's no corruption, where there's justice and fairness, equality. People aren't poor or wealthy, they're all the, the same. That is ideal because it's, it's taking the words, superlative words, and clinging to them, owning them. That's how life should be. But in our ability to reflect on the way it is, the world is like this. At this time, how you experience life here at Amravati or in the society you're living in, it is, you know, whether it's right or wrong, good or bad, or normal or abnormal, is up to various viewpoints and memories. So some people think that monastic rules Monasticism is, is avoiding responsibility. They have various views that it, we're living in ivory tower and uh, we just want to be fed for free. And so, because that's how they've been conditioned to interpret alms mendicancy. And then you live in Buddhist countries where alms mendicants are highly regarded, highly respected, because they're conditioned to respect that. The idea of dana, of the joy of giving, of, uh, you know, into the way that the generosity developed to, to supporting spiritual seekers can also be very inspiring as words, as memory. So ideals are inspiring and things that, and what is depressing is all the, uh, you know, the critical mind seeing what's wrong with everything, with oneself, with the world. Because that's depressing to be caught in just a negative, owning the negative memories and conditioning of your life is, is the reality of depression. Because it is lacking joy, you, you just see life as pointless, meaningless. You see yourself in these the same terms. <clears throat> So the witness, 
Bhutto or taking refuge in Buddha is witnessing this. It's not trying to change things, but to be the witness of the way it is as we experience life in, in the way that we individually experience it. The way we think, what we remember, what we were been told to believe in with our own fears or anxieties, worries about the future or our guilt, remorse or resentment of the past rather than being caught into this these uh, these conditions that are we remember we're the observer of memory the witness to this our ability to remember and all memories are impermanent and when you begin to recognize that, how briefly memory lasts, it's described in the suttas as soap bubbles or foam on the sea, just, just illusions, uh, temporary illusions that arise and cease. But what remains, what is, what is the position of the of the witness is conscious awareness. So then we get back to consciousness where memories can manifest. If there's no consciousness, there's not going to be any memories. If there's no consciousness, then there's nothing can manifest. There's no space, there's no earth, fire, water, or air. There's no forms, good or bad, beautiful or ugly. There's nothing. When, if you take the belief in annihilation, then annihilating consciousness. But can you? Because we identify consciousness with thinking, with the sensory experiences through the forms. So in the teaching of the five khandhas, when we talk about consciousness being impermanent, it's the, the sense, what we experience through the senses. So we think we're conscious because we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and a mind, thinking mind. We feel conscious because we have retentive memory. We think we're not conscious when we're sleeping, when we're in deep sleep, we, consciousness disappears. Or you're given some anesthetic for an operation, you lose consciousness. Is a general attitude of modern life in the Western world. But is this consciousness arise and cease? So we talk about unconscious, Conscious awareness in the awakened state then is where we reflect and we begin to abide in the pure conscious awareness which is non-critical, which is non-judgmental, which is formless and which allows us to be conscious of space and form. 
Because without consciousness, there could be no space and no form, no time. So forms are all about time. Like the body itself is a time-bound condition. So it's born, gets, grows up, gets old and dies. That's the experience of time that we identify with, that time is our reality. But is consciousness, is it time-bound or is it here and now, apparent here and now and timeless? Try to imagine timelessness. Just put forth the effort, try to imagine timelessness with your imagination, with your thinking mind. And you can't do it. Because the thinking mind is all about time. All thoughts arise and cease, all memories come and go and change. All the senses that we identify with, with our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, with our brain, are changing our time-bound conditions. And consciousness, then, if there was, if consciousness is personal and time-bound, then it, it also, then it's, then everything is annihilated. There's nothing left. Just total nihilism. And the Buddha made it very, very clear in his first sermon that the middle way, the Dhamma, is neither eternal or nihilistic or annihilationist, but timeless. So in uh, timelessness, then there's no language, but it is, is not critical. Conscious awareness, here and now, timeless, is aware of the manifestation and disappearance of phenomena of experience as we live our daily lives. So the importance of this, this kind of teaching at this time is that, that uh, Western society, modern life is, has been very you know, has developed the material world to, to an excellent degree, amazing kind of magical uh, mechanics, technology, <laughs> ideals that are perfect and inspiring. And we have organizations like United Nations or World Health Organizations or you know, the idea of uniting all the countries of the world in a, in a democratic way so that we all help each other and get along is, is uh, you know, the hope and aspiration of many idealistic people, which is beautiful in itself, so it's not disparaging that. But also, 
we feel discouraged when we see the way it is. When we hear about the wars that are going on, the starvation, the, the climate problems, the shootings in the United States, the COVID pandemic, the fears of even worse pandemics, of flooding, of, of uh, all kinds of climatic traumas are possible in the future. So for modern life, modern technology has, has you know, really developed the outward sense of going into the, into the minutiae of phenomena. But um, oftentimes misses out on the, the, the reality of Dhamma, ultimate reality, absolute reality. So the, the path, as we describe it, is not really a path. We call it the Eightfold Path, the Four, four Noble Truths. The last one, the fourth noble truth is called the Eightfold Path. And path is just a word that gives the impression of starting in one point and ending up in another point. So you, you're on the path, you're at the beginning of the path, and then you, you hope to reach the end of the path. That's the, the standard way of thinking and defining the word path. But then the chanting, when we say santidiko akariko, parent here and now, timeless, Dhamma is apparent here and now, and it's timeless. It's conscious awareness that we, that we can begin to recognize is our true nature. And then consciousness is not personal. So it's the differences between male and female, or black and white, or communists, or democrats, or capitalists, or criminals, and, and angels, and devas, and and brahmas, and devils, and all the imagined forms that we're capable of imagining, or creating, or believing in, they're conditions that are acquired. They're not ultimate reality. Is there a kind of ultimate evil in the world? Is there a evil force, a satanic force in the universe that is, is uh, very dangerous and we have to guard ourselves against it. We can be taken over by the devil, by Satan, by all the evil forces that we can imagine. Because we can project evil into the experience of life. And so in terms of a satanic force, in terms of the reality of now, 
is 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 a memory. If we believe there's no satanic force, that's another belief. Or if we believe there is, then they're both memories. And we're witnessing the memory. Believing in satanic force, there's a satanic force is is a condition that arises and ceases. Or believing there's no satanic force is another condition that arises and ceases. When you let go of both extremes, what's left is conscious awareness. And we call that Nibbana, end of suffering. So the end of suffering is here and now. It's not when everything in the world is is uh, straightened out and the evil forces are are uh, banished forever. So, in my own experience, for example, just taking this to the terms of personal experience of of experience that, that I have in the way I am as a Buddhist monk, as a personality. So I'm not thinking of it in terms of universal, you know, of a big universal uh, nibbana or end of suffering as, as once I realize the end of suffering that I that I never get old or sick or I'm healthy and and uh, I'll live forever you know that's that's still identity with the with the body and the conditioned realm because in the suttas the buddha after his enlightenment got old got sick and died gotama the buddha because that's the nature of the of the human form. But he obviously didn't take it personally, realized the personal conditioning that he acquired in his youth was just memory arising and ceasing, condition from others. You're told what, what you are. You're a prince. You're an important person. You're you know, and how, how how you should be responsible and good king and on and on like that. So it acquired all these kind of ideals, no doubt, to fight the forces of evil, the enemy, those that threaten the justice and fairness, the families of our society, are all kind of noble in their in their instruction. You know, to to be a hero, to save the world, to protect the family, protect the society. These are all noble sentiments, not to put them down, but they are that, they arise and cease. So when we're caught in in sentimentality or in the thinking process or in memories, then we never see the end of suffering because the world doesn't ever 
reach a point where it can be perfect because the very nature of this experience that we're all experiencing is, is imperfect. It's changing. It's impermanent. Where ideals are perfect, like the ideals that you can create with superlative thoughts, that you can create perfect superlative thoughts. But thoughts are impermanent, so even ideals, perfect ideals, are imperfect in their nature. They arise and they cease. If we just assume life is imperfect and we've got to make the best of it, that's not the answer either. It's not a kind of resignation to misery or to take a pessimistic view that life is meaningless, purposeless, and do the best you can with it or get on with it. These are all thoughts, ideas that we might have in our life. But when we take the stand as the witness, then we're, we're not the judge anymore. We're not trying to, to judge our negative thoughts or fears or idealism, but we're recognizing it is for what it is. All conditions are impermanent. And consciousness is not self. Is not personal. So it's the same for all of us. It's unitive. When we begin to, to abide in conscious awareness, we feel a uni, uni, universal a unity of life, the perfection. Because Dhamma is perfect. It's stainless and flawless. And the way to realize that is through conscious awareness. But when we talk about Dhamma, we, we use English words like absolute reality or ultimate reality, because that's the best, the best, those are superlative words in English. In Thailand, where they, it's nature, what's natural is consciousness. So in, in the Thai society, you brought up learning the Thai language, then you, you use the word Dhamma in very ordinary ways. What's natural, the way things are. But in Western society, it's, uh, we see nature, you know, in my own experience, I don't know if that's true with the rest of you, but I was always, saw nature as something out there, what's natural is the trees, the mountains, the, what hasn't been corrupted by modern society or materialism, what, that's nature. And it took me to be a reflective on the way things are to realize that this form here, sitting here, reflecting on Dhamma, is a natural form that arises and ceases. Rather than seeing nature as something you go out and enjoy in the springtime, go to the 
forest across the road, see the bluebells, they're very beautiful, and that's admiring nature. Or what's natural is that all the conditions that arise cease. Dhamma is apparent here and now, and that's a fact that you can prove. It's not an ideal apparent here and now. It's not some metaphysical theory or philosophy. It's the reality of being experienced. Consciousness is like this. You know you're conscious at this very moment. So it's not something remote or refined, but something that you truly are. But you can't claim it because to claim I, consciousness is mine, I have to think with the words, I have to use possessive pronouns. Consciousness is mine, is me. And uh, then, then I'm caught in the delusion that that comes from that assumption that I am consciousness as a person. But abiding in awareness, that's bhavana, or med real meditation. It's the ability to reflect on life as you experience it in whatever way we individually experience life. You can't really help the way you are we don't choose to have the personalities that we experience through these forms. We don't choose to be male or female or anything like that. These are just conditions we, we experience the world through, through the, through the senses, through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. You didn't choose your parents or your ancestors. But these conditions that we have, that we identify with, they're all sanya or memories, conditions that that manifest in consciousness and cease in consciousness. And it's through this kind of relentless reflecting in this way that we begin to know this. At first, it's we can understand it intellectually, it can be inspiring. We all, most of us found Buddha Dhamma very inspiring as an intellectual ability to read the suttas, the teachings of the Buddha and so forth. And so that intellectually it's quite, you know, it's quite a beautiful intellectual exercise. But the intellect is still conditioned. It's acquired knowledge. The suttas are acquired knowledge. Where Dhamma, the reality of Dhamma is apparent here and now and timeless. And as you, as I use the word relentlessly, remember that. So using memory to remember. So like, Puto is a is a is a can be a helpful sign 
like when you come into the temple and see the Buddha Rupa, you know, remember, you, your true nature is conscious awareness. Or you can believe that the Buddha Rupa has the sacred powers, or and those are beliefs. You know, the Buddha Rupas have magic powers, or some have magic powers, or, or psychic gifts. And one can believe that. But the way to use Buddha, Buddha images, or the word Buddha or Puto, is to remember here and now. I'm, consciousness is here and now, at this very moment. It's a fact. You know it. It's not a, a teaching that you acquired. So from the day you're born, the form is, is in consciousness, like the infant and the mother are both in the same consciousness, even when the infant is separated. Consciousness is not about being infant or being a mother, but it's where motherhood and birth can happen, can manifest, and also disappear. So this is a way of reflecting on the, on the, the, the gift we have of memory. Sanya Kanda, to, to use it as a, as a, in, with wisdom, with Panya, to observe, be the witness of Sanya rather than the owner of it. So in, uh, you know, in early years in Thailand with Lung Ho Cha, I had, I remember feeling, you know, being, I was in a kuti in the back of the forest at Wat Bapong. Very nice kuti, very separate from the rest of the monks. And, uh, I started remembering the things of the past that really angered me, resented. And I found myself getting all upset and, and uh, really angry over remembering things of the past that, I, you know, that were unpleasant or unfair. So then I reflected, it's, this anger has nothing to do with the situation I'm in. I'm not angry at the monks or the monastery, or, you know, they're treating me very well. And um, so the anger has nothing to do with the, with the situation. I was healthy then, and uh, I quite liked the, the life of a Buddhist monk. So I wasn't angry about anything in the present, but just the ability to remember, get myself wound up with anger and resentment through remembering the past, things, isolating incidences of humiliation or unfairness or injustice that I personally identified with, 
would create this real, this incredible anger. And then I started laughing at myself because as I started reflecting, it's all, you know, the, the soap bubbles form on the sea. There's nothing to it. A sanya or a memory is, is not, it's empty phenomena. And to hold on to empty phenomena is like holding on to something. You have to keep recreating it, remembering it, and, and letting it arouse emotions. To feel really angry about the injustices of life, you have to dwell on it, remember it, cling to it, keep remembering it. And of course that creates a sense of misery and and resentment in life as you're living it. So like when we talk about angry people, people that live in, in just this resentment and anger, because that's what they're doing, they're clinging to soap bubbles or foam on the sea, things that have no essence, no core, no heart, but keep them feeling this strong emotion and resentment towards life itself, towards others. And that's suffering, that's the first noble truth. So the end of suffering is to let go. It doesn't mean you, you, you resist it, or you deny it, or you try to get rid of anger, but anger is impermanent, and it manifests and, and disappears if you're willing to be the witness of it rather than take it personally and identify with it. So the apparent here and now and timeless, that's a fact that you can operate from. It's not a belief. It's not something that Buddhists believe in. Because you know, no matter what state of mind you're in at this moment, Consciousness, you're conscious. Consciousness is like this. And then when you begin to realize consciousness is silent, doesn't have a language, it's non-emotional, it's peaceful, and that's Nibbana, or ultimate reality. So I offer this as a reflection.